New homes are being built in Auckland at their fastest rate since the global financial crisis. Growth is so strong that a skill shortage could be looming. Well, at the moment you can sort of see there is enough uh, trades around at the moment, but what we are seeing is that the lag is starting to uh, take a bit longer to build houses because obviously sub-trades are starting to get over-committed. They're still rapidly trying to find some resources to be able to achieve it, but you can sort of see that the, the length of, of construction timeframes are starting to pull out, uh, which is indicating to me that there is starting to definitely be the shortage of, of um, you know, sub-trades. But owning a new home remains for many a distant dream. Demand is unending and at times it's overwhelming here. It's referred to as the hidden homeless, basically living in garages, the overcrowded houses, boarding houses, caravan parks, and a lot of these people just have nowhere else to go. Unemployment in Auckland has fallen sharply in the last quarter to the lowest in more than five years at 6.2%. So why have hundreds of motivated young people come to an event in West Auckland looking for work? I've been looking since, well, last month. We come from InWork New Zealand, so... There's like a whole bunch of us in a room on the internet, reading newspapers, trying to find employment pretty much. All different but still looking in the same places and if that's us in one room, imagine We're all the whole country. Yeah. Some parts of Auckland are enjoying the benefits of the property boom and rebounding jobs, but others are missing out, young people, beneficiaries and large parts of South Auckland particularly for Pacific and to a lesser degree Māori households. You've got households under significant distress financially and part of that's caused by the housing and the fact that rents are continuing to rise faster than inflation and faster than wages. I'm Todd Nile. And I'm Karen Mangnall. In this insight we look at the realities of big issues in the country's biggest city in the run-up to the election. Um, so we just came to the dining room. Um, this is Sandra, who wants only to be known by her first name. She's 45 and she's homeless. She and her two teenage sons and her 20-year-old daughter are living at the Monte Cecilia Housing Trust's emergency accommodation in Mangere. Sandra says the last few years have been devastating. Until a year ago, she was working at a plastics factory, taking home $890 a week and paying 500 of that in rent for a three-bedroom house in Papatoitoi. With the escalating rent every six months, it was going up $20, $20 every time. If I fell behind on the water rates, then I was looking at Baycorp. If I paid the water rates, then we had no power on. If I could pay the water rates to power, we didn't eat for that week. I was working 72 hours a week, six nights a week, six at night till six in the morning, and it just became too much of a struggle. I collapsed. Sandra got arthritis in her hands. She lost her job and then the house, when her job seeker support benefit couldn't pay the rent. They moved into a friend's state house until the friend was warned her tenancy could be terminated for having extra people living there. So my children and I packed up and for three weeks we lived out of a Honda, my car. We'd go to Manurua pools for showers. You know, I'd try and make a game out of it. Come on, let's go to the pools. We'll have a morning swim, then we'll have a shower, then we'll go to school. In desperation, Sandra turned to the Māori Women's Welfare League, who sent her to Monte Cecilia. I'm so thankful and appreciative of being in Monte Cecilia today. I really don't know where I would have been if I once wasn't here. Um, SIFS was certainly an option for me to look at, for them to take my children. I couldn't offer them anything. Not a home, uh, not seven meals you know, a week. Not three meals a day, seven meals a week. Clean water, somewhere you know, safe to sleep. I couldn't offer them any of that. 
Monte Cecilia helps homeless families living in garages, overcrowded houses, caravan parks and boarding houses. Its chief executive David Zussman says demand for emergency housing is rising. The demand is getting higher and higher. There was always families that were homeless and in quite desperate situations, but there's definitely more of them. And um, the number of solutions we're able to offer seems to be decreasing. Quite simply, there's a lack of supply. Monte Cecilia put a record 57 families from emergency accommodation into housing New Zealand homes last year. But David Zussman says there's been a big drop in offers of those homes since the job of assessing eligibility switched to the Ministry for Social Development in April. Unless things free up, he says, Monte Cecilia will struggle to meet this year's target of helping 35 families. Initially it dried up completely. We've had some progress, um, but not enough progress. So we're saying they need to help prioritise the families that we work with in a way that makes sure that, one, they're not here too long. We've had families here four, five, six, seven months, eight months. It's just far too long. It's not good for the well-being of the families. Most importantly, it just clogs up our system. Sandra and her sons and daughter have been at Monte Cecilia for ten months now. Every five days uh, we get a phone call just to reassess us to give them the same answers over and over again. We haven't moved, we're still here. The children are still with us, nothing's changed. My children are starting to lose faith in me. Um, they think mum's just a lot of empty promises and shattered dreams at the moment. It's hard looking at their faces. David Zussman can't understand why Sandra and families like hers are no longer being offered state housing. We can't understand why that would be such a radical change. It's the same system. You know, Housing New Zealand weren't cherry-picking, they weren't breaking the system, they were interpreting the system and we were having high-priority families. They're the same families, but we, we're struggling to get them housed in, in the same way. Rising house prices and years of not building enough new homes have helped to widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots in Auckland. The Auckland Council estimates the city is short by tens of thousands of homes. Even a sharply rising construction rate is still at only half of the 13,000 new dwellings needed each year over the next three decades. Prices have risen 33% over the past three years. The council's chief economist, Jeff Cooper, says housing is playing a big role in determining wealth in the city. What this has meant is that if you're able to get on the housing ladder, you essentially go into the fast lane of the pool, if you like, you know, where everybody else is, is uh, stuck in the slower lane. And... As we've seen uh, house prices jump dramatically and it hasn't been uncommon to see rates of above 10% increasing per year, um, at, at the same time wage growth has been uh, more muted um, in the area of 2 to 4% over the last few years, um, we're starting to see those people that had, had been able to access the housing market earlier on are you know, looking at the inequality of wealth, uh, not necessarily the inequality of income, uh, those you would expect those numbers have increased as we've seen house prices jump so, so dramatically. A social policy analyst for the Salvation Army, Alan Johnson, says those who can afford to buy are using the housing market to insulate their families from poor people. They'll pay that extra $100,000 to buy a house in a community with a better high school. And I think it's a form of economic apartheid that what we're doing is saying we don't want to live with those people and so... There is this sort of growing gap, I think, in social and economic terms between the poor and the non-poor. Ongoing debate about how to slow rising house prices in Auckland has included discussion about the role of both local and absentee foreign investors. Uh, well, right now we, we have uh, three rental homes and a block of four flats. One of the local investors is John Priest. 
We started investing several years ago and then we became more active again in 2012 because the market at that time seemed to be in a bit of a trough. And so we went out and bought three residential properties that year. Now the market's completely changed because the prices that uh, you would have to pay now wouldn't allow us to get the sort of yield that we're looking for as landlords. Mr Priest sees his role in the Auckland housing market as a positive one. He says the fundamental problem in Auckland is a shortage of homes. He doesn't see any party's policies as having a big impact on investors such as himself, even a possible capital gains tax. Well, it probably wouldn't affect us much at all because we buy and hold properties. Where it does affect me is it, it, it would remove some of my competitors, if you like, because if people are buying with the intention of selling for capital gain in the short term and there's a capital gains tax, it would discourage them from entering the market and reduce my competition when I'm, when I'm trying to buy a property at a workable economic yield. Monte Cecilia's David Zussman says Auckland's booming property market makes compelling headlines but overlooks the impact on those who can't afford it. If there's problems for young professional people to access home ownership or even decent private rental you hear, what you've got to remember is low-income families and individuals are being squeezed out of the market even more at the other end. Um, they're getting the lower quartile rental properties, so they're more likely to be in a poorer condition or have a landlord who's less scrupulous. For Sandra, the idea of buying her own home is crazy talk. Now surviving on $480 a week, her every hope is fixed on a state house with income-controlled rent. Everybody here is wanting a house, but my crisis is once I leave here, how am I going to pay the power? How am I going to pay the water rates? How am I going to put food on the table? If I don't, I won't have the support that Monty gives me, not just financially, but emotionally as well. And that scares me. And um, MSD has asked me would I do private again. I could honestly tell them no. There is just no way it can be done. Meanwhile, Sandra is looking for work, but the prospects aren't great. I've been to a couple of job interviews and I'm going up against 20-year-olds. I'm 45, so I'm not looking exactly rosy right now, but I'm not going to give up hope. If anything, I'm going to make my children go to work. <laughs> Job hunting is just as intimidating for Auckland's 22,000 young people, not in either employment, education or training, the so-called neat youth. Yeah, it makes you not want to go to an interview like that. Scary, because the interview was like a group of people. Mm. 30, just for like five jobs. Mm. Somewhere at uni, somewhere yeah. um, had a job before, mm. somewhere still at school. Sam, Reese, Reha and Toya all dropped out of school without qualifications. They've been helped back on track by Mangere's Strive Community Trust and its Youth Guarantee Training Programme. The young women wish employers were more sympathetic. Because I heard back then, like, it was jobs. easier to get jobs than now. 14. Mm -hmm. Now when you're 16, trying for a job, you need level 3. And you need that work experience, which you don't have. Yeah, because you don't live in... In a school. That's the way forward. Jobs for just youth. There should be more jobs available. Like especially made for the youth 20 and under. Jobs oh, to learn, help you learn. Strive's youth service manager Gail Wilson says it's hard to get South Auckland companies to take on young people to train on the job. If employers were to have a look at investing some money into creating jobs for youth and the government could come in and have a look at maybe a subsidy scheme 
so that employers could do that. They'd have work-based learning, they'd have earn while you learn, they develop the skills, they increase their confidence, and they're earning money. Auckland Council's Education Trust, Comet, says employers do want to employ young people, but most are small to medium enterprises, and the chief executive, Susan Warren, says they can't afford to carry young people until they become fully productive. What would help is actually to have um, more funding from welfare because these young people otherwise would be unemployed. So um, things like Task Force Green that enable young people to move into jobs and to be partly supported as if they were still um, on unemployment until they're fully productive in their work. Finding work is not the only problem facing young Aucklanders. For those in work, keeping those jobs can also be a challenge. Nearly 200 motivated young job seekers are at this expo in Henderson in West Auckland, getting help and encouragement and a chance to meet employers looking for staff. I'm Megan and I'm from the North Shore. I'm Shani and I'm from the North Shore. Both Megan and Shani had and lost jobs and have been busy applying, so far without success. But Shani isn't surprised to find so many in the same boat. Honestly, no, no. Even people that I went to school with, a lot of them, well, at least four of them I know have actual jobs and careers. Some of them, I'd say about five of them are studying and the rest either have a child on the dole or still looking. And, and yet we hear, you know, talk about the rock star economy and how Auckland's booming and yeah. is it, it not as easy as it sounds? It really is not that easy as it sounds. They sort of like to make it sound better than it is, I think. It definitely isn't that good. I, I studied beauty. Um, this event is part of Auckland Council's Youth Connections Programme, a network of agencies, employers and training institutions trying to equip young job seekers and help them find work. One of the country's biggest companies, Fletcher Building, is at the expo. Its recruitment programme manager, Jenny Marsh, says they are looking for young workers. Currently at this expo we're bringing along 10 current vacancies and we potentially could take 15 to 20 young people into those roles and that's everything from the trainee truck driver which is a career and ceiling fixers and roles that people don't have any knowledge of. Despite the daunting unemployment figures, Megan remains hopeful. Yeah, pretty optimistic, you know, just there's so many jobs here that, you know, we're all looking and... You know, hopefully something is there. Across town in wealthy Remuera, Charlotte Collins is in her final year at Epsom Girls Grammar and also sees a testing time ahead. I do part-time work, so I know realistically it's really hard to get jobs out there. And I know when I finish uni, I'm facing one of the toughest environments to get a job. Most university students don't get jobs in what they study. And that is because of the economy. There's more people out there looking for jobs and we're still recovering from the financial crisis. But it's something I've kind of accepted, that I'm going to work hard to try and get those jobs, and I might not get it at first, but the government can't directly address you're studying a Bachelor of Commerce and Law, here's a job for you. Like, I don't expect that from them. The ability of Charlotte, Megan, Shani and the other young job seekers to find work is crucial to reducing inequality in Auckland, in the view of the Council's Chief Economist, Jeff Cooper.
any increase to employment at the bottom end of, of that is, is going to help uh, inequality and certainly provide opportunities um, for people to, to access employment and wages, and that's a good thing. So in that sense, yes, it will um, help, help to alleviate poverty and, and reduce inequality to some extent, um, although I would note that in that discussion we're talking about inequality of income as opposed to inequality of, of wealth, and those are two different issues. The employment prospects in Auckland depend not only on which sector you're talking about, but who you are. Thanks for coming along to our IT specialist seminar. Here so in Three Kings, 20 skilled immigrants have turned up for guidance on how to find their way into a job in the IT industry, which in Auckland is growing steadily and employs more than 30,000 people. The Auckland Regional Migrant Service helps nearly 1,500 new arrivals each year to find work. My name is Narjis Shafi. I'm from Iran. I've been here for three months. My name is Vanessa. I'm from Mexico, and I have been here for the past one and a half years. I'm Jason. I come from China, and I, I have been here for only one month. And the, I think so. Jason, Narjis, and Vanessa are highly skilled in their disciplines, but are struggling to get interviews. Most of the immigration to New Zealand are a skilled person, but the most uh, challenging for our as a newcomer is to uh, find uh, what exactly the employee in here needs and to introduce ourselves to them. We all of us have uh, very good uh, experience, very good uh, technical knowledge, but the only I think uh, our language. Uh, maybe to introduce ourselves to employee, I think. Before I moved to Auckland, I worked in uh, Shanghai Airport for more than 10 years, from an IT engineer to IT manager. So uh, after I moved to Auckland, I found there's a lot of opportunity advertised in Seeker, in Trademe, or uh, in the website of uh, big companies. And uh, I applied and sent a lot of applications Unfortunately, country, I didn't get any response. I found maybe there's some mistake I made, and I asked for the help of arms. It's a little bit frustrating, but I'm sure I'm going to find something, you know, so, because yeah, I have all the qualifications and everything. So I'm sure I'm going to find the best company, and, and I'm sure I'm going to realize my, you know, my, all my experience and I here, yeah. Hi everyone, my name's uh, Patrick Howard, I'm the... Patrick Howard started the web company 10 years ago and over the next year plans to nearly double its staff to 50. He knows firsthand the importance of skilled migrants to the sector. Uh, I think we've got about three or four Kiwis and the rest uh, are, are all international. Um, and. We, we get approached by people before they even get into New Zealand now. So. We need to recognise as employers that there is a shortage and, and we are in a multicultural uh, society. And so we're going, we're going to get uh, people applying that perhaps um, don't have that traditional Kiwi accent and, and we need to think outside the square as employers as well. Otherwise we aren't going to uh, attract the offshore people or even those people that are from offshore that are here that have got the right skills but we're not getting the marriage uh, together with those people. Um, and that's no different Skilled to, migrants to such as this group get permission to come to New Zealand but then have to figure out themselves how to find work and settle. The chief executive of the Auckland Regional Migrant Service, Mary Dawson, hopes this is changing. 
what we hope to see now is that Immigration New Zealand, with its new model that kicked off on July 1st, is putting a huge amount of emphasis now on the uh, client engagement with those who are thinking of coming to New Zealand, who then uh, pass the requirements to get a visa, to then match those people uh, more directly into the industry or with key employers and to follow their pathway to help them to, in fact, secure that job and help them to, if they have a partner, to make sure their partner gets the appropriate job as well. Jobs, especially for young people, are one of the priorities for the independent Māori statutory board, set up to represent Māori interests as part of the 2010 amalgamation of the city's local bodies. Unemployment among Māori in Auckland is running at 13%, double the region's overall rate. The board to date has worked mainly with the council, but its chair David Taipari says it now wants a more direct relationship with the incoming government. From the board's perspective, um, as we've done just recently with Auckland Council, is promoted the top-down approach, and we don't see why that can't be applied with central government. So clearly we want to be... Uh, meeting with uh, ministers in the, in the new government uh, and then trying to facilitate a plan together uh, and how that will filter down through the departments out onto the people on the street. And, and we're wanting results, you know, we want tangible um, results. Uh, so just reporting against uh, things isn't really going to cut it for us. Um, we want to actually see the change occur. The creation four years ago of a single Auckland council covering a third of the country's population and with a $3 billion annual budget has given the city better control of its destiny. But in the big-ticket areas of welfare, education, health and transport, it remains dependent on central government. So does the government get what Auckland needs? Auckland City Missioner Diane Robertson doesn't think so. I actually really do believe that everybody struggles to understand the problems in Auckland. There's money poured in social services, there's housing forums, there's social housing forums. I think we don't have almost like a strategic plan for Auckland and particularly focusing on those citizens who are the least able to participate. The government spends an estimated $2 billion a year in Auckland, largely in health, education and welfare and housing. But the Salvation Army's Alan Johnson says it isn't going to the right places. I reckon it's just adding sort of band-aids. I don't believe that um, much of it's doing much else other than containing a problem. Are they paying enough attention to Auckland? And um, to I think they are. I think they are. I think this government's acutely aware of the challenges in Auckland. And I think they are also very aware of the challenges in South Auckland. Um, I just don't think that them or their officials have a clue on how to, how to address those problems. A business lobby group says the government and its ministries are getting better at understanding how to work with Auckland, but change is needed. Kim Campbell of the Employers and Manufacturers Association says the existence of both an Auckland and a national transport agency is one example. The agency drives through Auckland. I mean, they say, well, these are national roads, and they are indeed, and a lot of people going from Hamilton to Wangwei. But the fact is most of the traffic on the, the transport agency's roads, uh, the national roads, are actually Aucklanders. So it just seems dopey. But without having a, making the, the actual ultimate suggestion of, of how or what, uh, certainly that we need to do something is obvious and we have to do it soon because otherwise we're just not going to get done what we have to do. Or we may end up investing a, a lot of money in things that really aren't in the end going to be needed. Transport is one area where the priorities of Auckland's council and the government have obvious differences. 
The council's determined to start work on the $2.4 billion downtown rail tunnel next year, but the government won't commit to fund its share until 2020. Labour and the Greens back the council's timetable. The chief executive of Auckland's Chamber of Commerce, Michael Barnett, also wants the early start and sees the relationship between Auckland and Wellington as a work in progress. I don't think they're doing it better. Um, I think there's still a, a sense of frustration uh, between the, the two parties and from my perspective I would suggest that that's only going to take um, more talking and a, a better understanding uh, by both parties. The cost of getting around Auckland is also an issue for some. Diane Robertson says welfare policies need changing to reflect the difficulties of just getting to work in Auckland. If you are in a very low paid job and you have to travel 30 kilometres to get to a job at unsociable hours when the transport's not working particularly well and you've got nowhere to put your children in childcare because you're working night shifts, government policy doesn't account for that. And so we need to be rethinking how lives work and how people work and what people need as supports. At Comet Education Trust, Susan Warren also believes the government needs to pay more attention to what Auckland's really like. She says it's not only the biggest city with a very youthful population, but the most ethnically diverse with the biggest Māori, Pacifica and Asian populations. And even within Auckland, what works in the south won't necessarily work in the west. People making policy in Wellington can't possibly understand that unless they come here and actually see for themselves. We see a lot of policy being made for the country as a whole and an expectation that it will work everywhere, um, which we know it doesn't. Um, and we also see a lot of policy makers staying in there at their desk in Wellington, or if they make it to Auckland, they arrive at the airport and they get straight into a taxi into Central City. Many of them haven't seen the South, many of them haven't seen the West, let alone the North and all the other areas. All the welfare groups agree the government's top priority for Auckland should be to fix the housing crisis. Alan Johnson says state intervention is essential so gains in incomes don't just end up in landlords' pockets. A way of saying that in 10 years' time we're going to have, I don't know, 10,000 more affordable houses in Auckland. And right now the government policy doesn't go in that direction. Clearly the Labour Party is suggesting with the Kiwi Bill program and a huge ambitious target of 100,000 houses, whether that's achievable you know, is a big question mark, but clearly it's something that would benefit the modest and low-income households here in Auckland. National's housing policy is to increase help to first home buyers with KiwiSaver accounts. It raises the cap for a qualifying Auckland house to $550,000. But Alan Johnson says that's still beyond the reach of many. The average house being built in Auckland today costs around 500 550k. Well, that's simply not affordable to a household with a household income of $60,000, $70,000. Back at Monte Cecilia's emergency housing, for Sandra, the top election issue is very clear. Oh, absolutely, the housing. It's just crazy. There has to be something done to meet all our people's needs. If the government was to give us a chance to own our own home, fair enough, five years live in it, charge us our rent, but use a portion of that as a deposit. We've got to try and offer security to other next generations when there is none. And that's Insight for this week. I'm Karen Mangnall. And I'm Todd Nile. If you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or send us a tweet at rnz underscore insight. 